as well as I didn't. So uh, thank you for being here and, uh, and uh, spending your holiday here with us. So it affects our circumstances, but because of his goodness, because God is so faithful to us, we have the opportunity through our circumstances and situations to point people past our life and our situation to the one behind it, to point people to God. And so it's exciting because it shows us that God is choosing to use you for his benefit and for his glory. So do you see your, your circumstances are a blessing from God that he is giving you the opportunity to use to show others his goodness? He's allowing us the chance to be the object of his grace, to be the object of his mercy and blessings. And he's doing this in real time so that through our lives, other people are pointed to him and may experience a life change through his love being funneled through us. And for that, that is good news. So this week, we are continuing a study that we began last week called The Journey. And through our study and our time together, we're walking through Luke's description of Jesus. And we've talked about how Luke's description of the life of Christ represented a journey. And it was a journey that had a very specific destination. Christ came for a purpose. So we see that his journey had a specific destination, but we also see that along the way, you and I benefit from the lessons and the teachings of Christ in his life. He verbally taught the ways in which we should approach life, but also he mirrored it just by how he lived. He showed us through his life how we are to live ours. And last week, we talked about the background on Luke. He was a Gentile, a, a person not from the chosen line, uh, uh, the chosen nation of Israel. So this is a guy who, who wouldn't have had an understanding of, of what was taking place here specifically other than by nationality he wouldn't have. And this is a Gentile writing to another Gentile, Theophilus, about the salvation that Jesus offers to all people regardless of any type of nationality. And this was good news for them. The gospel of Jesus, as we talked about, is that he came to seek and to save the lost. We talked about a verse that we'll be looking at in several weeks where Jesus says, you know, my purpose here is to seek and save those that were lost. And so that his gospel is a gospel for sinners, not just a gospel for a nation or a nationality. And the gospel, which means good news, is about what he accomplished, not what we accomplished. It's about what he freely gives, not what we are entitled to. And so to get a complete picture of what Luke is going to show us this morning as we continue to walk through this New Testament, this New Testament writing, we have to backtrack a little into the Old Testament today to get a true picture and to truly see that this story that, Jesus began, that God began to write since before the beginning of time to see that this was prophesied and this was something that would come to pass through the life of Jesus. So if you will, I want you to take your Bibles and, and turn with me this morning to Isaiah chapter 7. And that's where we're going to begin this morning, Isaiah chapter 7. I want to remind you that the coming of Jesus was not accidental. Okay, I know we, we know that here, but sometimes it doesn't always find its way here. So the coming of Jesus was not accidental. This was not plan B to a failed plan A. Despite the fact that we fell away and we did not do life the way that God created us to do life, we understand that sin was not the original, cre he did not create things to be that way. We still realize that it was not outside of his sovereignty. So, so Jesus' coming was not a reaction to a failed plan A. It was the plan all along. And so our lives are not a surprise to him. Your life is not a surprise to him. You may say, well, you, you don't understand my life. Well, I may not, but he does. It was never a surprise to him. And another thing, your sin is not a surprise to him. 
You, know, you, can, you can hide it and disguise it and mask it, but to him it's no surprise. He knew that you would need a Savior. He knew the sins you would struggle with, and he made perfect provision through Jesus. And so all throughout the Old Testament, people were pointed to the Messiah. God chose to speak to the people through prophets. And Jesus came, and the beauty of the story is that he fulfilled every single prophecy. Every one of them, the two that we're going to look at this morning, were completely fulfilled in Jesus. And isn't, isn't that just like God? So good to us. That is, even though we needed, he needed to offer us no explanation other than our sin needed a Savior, and this was him. He chooses years and years and hundreds of years before it happened. He chose to reveal to the people pre-birth of Christ what would happen through Jesus as a way to reaffirm to them that he was indeed the Savior that was promised. And so this morning, I want to show you these scriptures. Isaiah chapter 7. Let's begin reading at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, King Ahaz. He said, ask a sign for the Lord your God. Let it be as Sheol or as, as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear them, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary man that you, that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is where it gets good. The Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So check this out. Isaiah was sent to King Ahaz. He says, ask for a sign. He says, I'm not going to do it. He says, I'm going to give you one. And his message was to serve as a sign to them of Christ, a virgin. That's important, okay? Let's don't read past that. A virgin who would conceive and would have a son. And this son would be called Emmanuel or God with us. So this is a prophecy many, 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 many years before Jesus came. And he's saying, look, a virgin is going to conceive and is going to give birth to a son and his name is going to be Emmanuel. And they would know that that means God with us. So check out what the prophet is saying. First of all, a virgin is going to conceive and have a son. A girl, never having been with a guy, is going to get pregnant. And she's going to have a son. This would have been a bizarre prophecy for King Ahaz to hear. One, it was physically impossible. And two, it would be a strange way for the king of Jews that they had waited on to enter into the picture. So, you know, you see the miracle in this. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that the character surrounding the event would say, okay, yeah, I read about this. Because it was fresh. This was new. They were, this was prophecy to them. Okay, so he's saying, the king, you know, this king that you have been waiting on that's going to be the Messiah that's going to save you for your sins, here's how he's coming. He's going to come through a virgin birth from a peasant girl. So you can imagine right off the bat that this would have been completely uh, different than what they expected. And it says not only would the virgin have a son, but, but his name would be called God with us. So the God that they worshipped would come to them in physical form. Now, they held, they held high regard for Yahweh, so high that oftentimes they would not even speak his name. They felt like his name was too holy to even be spoken by their human lips. And, and now the prophecy is coming to them, and he's saying, look, there's going to be a virgin who's going to have a birth, and this son... He's going to be God with you. So the prophet has just told them that God was coming to them in the form of a baby, and he would be God with them. But there's a second prophecy that I want us to look at. That's going to be, we're going to come back to that in a bit. So remember, the virgin is going to become pregnant. She's going to have the Son of God. All right, Malachi chapter 3. Two places here we're going to see the second prophecy that, we'll, that Luke will entertain this morning in his first chapter. Malachi 3, verse 1. A few pages to the right. 
And hear this. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So who is this Elijah that's being prophesied? This is a reference to a prophet who would come before Jesus is revealed and he would point people to Jesus. He says, this is not the fulfillment. This is the forerunner. This person's coming and he's going to point to the coming king. And we'll see this morning that this would be fulfilled through John the Baptist. So it is important, as we'll see this morning, that the Old Testament was pointing to the forerunner, John the Baptist, and the fulfillment, Jesus. And after this word was spoken by the prophet Malachi, after he spoke these words to the people, a dark day for the nation of Israel would begin. Because, see, for the next 400 years, 400 years, the people who had regularly heard from God through prophets, who had regularly seen and heard from him, would not hear another word from him for 400 years. So the last thing they knew was the promise of this Elijah who would come, this prophet who would come with the next message pointing people on to the coming Messiah. And through this, things had gone crazy. Spiritual leaders had fallen into worshiping the God of tradition and and legalism and corruption in their kings had set in. And I'm sure the people, they felt abandoned. They felt forgotten, frustrated from hearing nothing from God. This God who had prophesied to them, who had said all these things and had showed them the way that things would be in the nation of Israel. Isaiah 53, we read about the more prophecy of the coming of Jesus. But, but this, this God who had spoken to them quite regularly now went silent for 400 years. And nothing seemed to happen. I found myself this past week, as many of you probably did, watching the Weather Channel. You know, how many, we, all, we all stay glued to the TV, right? The storm that we were watching. You know, it was moving five miles an hour, but I watched it for 16 hours. It's not moving, but I kept waiting on the next thing to come. They're fixing to tell me something good. I'm looking out the window. I'm waiting on it. They're, I'm anticipating. They said it's coming. And, and there was all of this speculation and this anticipation, which pretty much led to, you know, just disappointment and nothing. Now, it sounds weird to say disappointed that we had no storm, but, I mean, when you're waiting on something, I mean, some of you are never going to eat all the Debbie cakes and cans of tuna and drink all the water that you bought. And this has to be a little bit of the the emotions they were experiencing. You know, they were waiting on this Elijah. They were told by the prophet Malachi that he is coming, so they were on the lookout. And so now generations would live and die and not see the fulfillment of that prophecy. They would wait 400 years and nothing would happen. They had to be questioning, you know, where are you, God? You promised. You promised to send us something else. You promised this Messiah. You promised us the forerunner who would be the fulfillment of these these prophecies. They believed what was said and nothing was happening. Do you ever find yourself in this position? You're holding on to the promises of God knowing that he is faithful knowing that he has made a promise and his promises are always true and fulfilled, but becoming discontent as you wait. As you wait on the coming of the promises of God. I want you to know that in those moments where you may have not have heard or felt or seen anything from God, know that he has not stopped his workings. 
He is acting out of his total control, and he's orchestrating it all. You know, he made a promise, and he waited 400 years to make it happen, but it came. And in your life, he has made a promise. He is faithful to us. And though I can't tell you how the circumstances of your life will play out, I can promise you that God is in control, and his plan is at work in your life, so don't lose heart. And so in Luke 1, we're going to see the silence was broken. Finally, finally, in Luke 1, the silence is broken, and Luke recounts the tale of where, uh, the, the story of where Jesus broke the silence to his people. So turn to Luke 1, and we're going to be begin reading in verse 5. Now remember the preface of what we talked about last week. Luke, a Gentile, writing to Theophilus, a Gentile, probably someone of influence, explaining to him the exact things that happened so he could be certain of the facts that had been taught to him. So silence, 400 years. And now we're going to see that, a, that a, a, something that began in the heart of Judaism is going to be, the silence is going to be broken in a very familiar scene to them, which was at the temple. So verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the, from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So let me set the context of what is happening here. Herod was the king, and this guy was nuts, okay? This guy did some crazy stuff. He was called Herod the Great, and being the king of Judah would mean that he was the king over the entire region of the Jews. He was important. It's not Caesar here, but we are talking about Herod the Great over this region of the Jews. Pretty important position. He came from the line of Esau. Now remember, Jacob and Esau, we've talked about that. We've implanted this, this story into the big story, the gospel story. Remember that he came from the, from the, uh, that Herod came from the line of Esau. Jacob and Esau, they came out from the womb fighting from birth. They would become two nations, the Israelites and the Edomites. The Edomites were constantly trying to kill the Israelites, and this carries through to now where we see Herod and Edomite who wants to kill Jesus, an Israelite, because he sees the threat on his life. Herod hears that many believe that when Jesus was born that this was the prophesied king of the Jews. And so we see in Matthew's gospel that all firstborn sons were ordered by Herod to be killed. So Herod was ruthless. You know, he was a genius, though. So much of what you see as the remains of ancient Jerusalem was the work of his architecture. He's a smart guy. A lot of the remnants of the buildings in the ancient, of the ancient city of Jerusalem were the workings of Herod. He had nine or ten wives. And he just murdered one of them. No, no real reason. No, we don't really know. He just, he just murders one of his wife and, and two kids. And he's ruthless. He does not love God. He does not, does not love God's people. So all of this is coming under the reign of a very fanatical king, okay? But second, we need to understand the divisions of the priesthood. Look back in verse 5. He came, uh, Zechariah was from the division of Abijah. So this is important. Priests during this time, they were organized into 24 teams. And these teams would take turns rotating through the temple service. In 1 Chronicles 24.10, we see the eighth team identified, which was this priestly division that Zechariah would come from. It says this division would be from the family line of Aaron, who was the older brother of Moses. So that kind of places it into the big story there. So with all these priests, they would take turns coming into the temple, offering the sacrifices, burning the incense, carrying out the priestly duties. Luke chapter 1, verse 6. Let's go. And they were both righteous before God. So Zechariah and Elizabeth are good folks. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. 
And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So Zechariah and Elizabeth are righteous before God. They're serving him faithfully, but despite their faithfulness, she was barren. Now in those days, that would probably be one of the worst things that could happen, not having kids. You know, it was almost looked on disgracefully, like what happened that you have no offspring? You know, having kids would mean having someone to take care of you when you get old. This is pre-401k. This, your, your, your offspring took care of you. And it was a continuation of their involvement in, 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 of Israel's future as they understood it. So, but they had neither. They, 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 had, they had no provision they had, but through their offspring, but they still served faithfully. I think that's a great message to us this morning as we walk through this, these, these circumstances and the facts of the circumstances. Do you have something in your life that's similar to this? Do you sometimes wonder why God has not given you something that you really want, even though you are faithfully serving him? Have you ever wondered why, God, why haven't you given us the kids that we want so bad? We're trying to do everything right, and this is our reward. And why was I passed again for that job or that promotion that I really wanted? And why do we feel constantly overwhelmed by our finances when we're trying to serve you faithfully through them? And why am I having trouble finding any kind of purpose in life? You know, I'm trying to be your servant. You know, this, to this faithful God, why am I experiencing these things? But look at the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth. The Bible makes it very clear that her barrenness was not a curse on them. This wasn't God punishing them because they had walked blamelessly. They were seen as righteous before the Lord. So do you see your circumstances as a curse, or do you see a faithful God acting out his will in your life? Because he knows what is best for you, and he works in his timing. So we, we, have, we take heart in that. Verse 8. So now we, we see again, he was serving as a priest before God, and his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, and he was chosen to enter the temple and to burn incense. And everybody was outside waiting on this. And this is important. The divi- different divisions of priesthood would work in the temple, as I said before, to carry out the duties of the temple. But in order to see the significance of this, you have to realize that there were thousands of priests. There were thousands of priests in these divisions. And the way that they decided who would do what was by, by rolling dice, by casting lots to see who would be the one to enter the holy place to burn incense or to carry out the other duties. That's how they decided. It wasn't chosen by merit. It wasn't chosen by, it's your turn in the order. Casted lots, whoever it fell on, was, that was the one who would go into the holy place to carry out the duties. So this was not a common, common occurrence. This was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah. This was his time when it comes to priesthood. And so the duties of the, of the temple pre-Jesus were so important for a number of reasons. This is what made this moment so significant. He was part of the priesthood, Division 8. He was part of that, and the lot had fallen to where he would go and he would carry out the sacrament. And this is important because, first of all, the temple was a place where God's presence dwelled in the Holy of Holies. Okay, we have to remember, the presence of God at that time was contained and was in this Holy of Holies. There was a place in the temple called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. The Ark of the Covenant sat there, and it was the presence of God as people knew it at the time. So coming to the temple, being able to enter that place was entering into the presence of God. This was also a place where God's people would come to worship him. We see later that a discussion arises between Jesus and a woman, and she says, well, my, my family says we worship here, and others say worship here, and Jesus says, look, I'm looking for people who worship me in spirit and truth, but at this time, the temple was a gathering place to worship God. For us, this makes the coming of Christ so significant, because when Jesus came, he says, you know what? We're going to tear this, this veil that has separated you from my presence through my son. It's gone. 
you have access now. And so, but for the people at this time, they would come to worship him at the temple. And also, this was where their sins were atoned for. Before Jesus, death was still required for sin, and so animals were sacrificed at the temple to atone for and pay for the sins of the people. And so this was Zechariah's time. The incense that he would burn in the temple symbolizes the prayers of the entire nation of Israel. He is burning incense, which was a symbol of the prayers of the people. So at that particular moment, he was the focal point because he represented the mediator for that moment between the, the people of, of Israel and God. And we see in verse 11, verse 10, there was a whole multitude of people that were praying outside as this moment came for Zacharias. So this is something that, that he was looking forward to. Verse 11. So there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Do not be afraid, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Verse 18, And Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So old Zechariah and old Elizabeth, who have prayed and wanted more than anything to have a child, will be blessed, not just with a child, but with the forerunner of the Messiah. Now this is huge. In the middle of a once-of-a-lifetime event for Zechariah, an angel appears to him and says, Guess what? Your day is about to get even better. Now, obviously, when he went to the temple, it was not a common occurrence for an angel to be standing there. So this was something that we understand that he had this fear. Fear came over him, obviously. And he says, you know what? These prayers that you have have brought to God for a son, I'm going to answer them. The prophecy of the Old Testament prophet Malachi was going to be fulfilled in the coming of Elijah, whose name would be John. John meaning God has been gracious. Such an awesome thing. The gracious God revealing himself and fulfilling the prophecy. The angel says he's going to be a great prophet. He will be great to the Lord. He will not drink wine or alcohol, you know, meaning that he would live like a Nazarite, which was an Israelite who lived life especially committed to God, who not only walked in his ways but also refrained from drinking wine or alcohol or anything that, would, that, would, that would, they might mistake for the joy in their life so that, they, so that people would see that all their joy and strength came from God alone. So this was, he was going to live in a, different, a diff, whole different level than just a normal Israelite. He was going to walk as a Nazarite, but he would also be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. That's important. The role of the Holy Spirit in this story is all over the place. 
which makes perfect sense because we're going to see in the, in the sequel to this book, the book of Acts, we're going to see that, that Luke is going to write about the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And here we're seeing it in the life of John. We're seeing it in the life of Jesus. We're seeing it in the, in, in the, the, as the Holy Spirit as a part of their life. And so we're going to see it all throughout the writings of Luke. And that's extremely important because he shows that this guy, John, was going to fulfill prophecy, but he would not be God. This was not God with you. So this is a, this is a huge theme in this book, and we see that John was the forerunner to this prophecy. But we also see that Zechariah didn't exactly respond the way that he should, did he? Obviously by the fact that he was now mute. You know, Zechariah, uh, I love how he words things. He's a smart man. You know, he's, he knows what it means to be a, a husband that says things good for his wife. You look, see what he says there? He says, I'm old and my wife is advanced in years. You know, it's a nice way of saying, uh, you know, he's a smart guy there. He knew he had to go home with her. And so, so Zechariah basically says, I hear what you're saying, but frankly, I don't see how this is possible. Do you realize I am old and she is advanced in years? He says, how is this even going to happen? You know, are you ever like that? You know, God, I know that you're what your word says. I know what you're capable of, but how could you be in control and my circumstances still be the same? God, I feel like you've forgotten about me. I've prayed and prayed, but you haven't answered. So frankly, it's hard to believe that you're going to answer me right now. You know, God, I know that your scripture says that we are more than conquerors through you, but I have fought this habit. I fought this lifestyle. I fought this sin for so long and nothing has changed and just frankly have lost hope. And we often find ourselves with the same type of disbelief that Zechariah showed. But look at the angel's reply in verse 19. The angel says, listen, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent by him to speak to you and to bring you this good news. So the angel said, my news to you is good news that I was sent to proclaim to you by God himself. He says, who are you to doubt this? Who are you to not believe what I'm telling you? I was sent by God. I stand in his presence to deliver this message to you. And so then he was silenced, and he wouldn't speak again until the birth of John. And at that moment, it says he worshiped. We're going to see that uh, next week. So prophecy has been fulfilled from Malachi through the forerunner of John the Baptist, but it gets good. So now to the fulfillment, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named, named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary and he came to her and he said greetings O favored one the Lord is with you but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting that might be and the angel said to her do not be afraid Mary for you have found favor with God and behold you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus so there it is. After 400 years, the king, the long-awaited Messiah, born of a virgin, has been conceived. Gabriel's greeting was literally, grace, you who are highly graced. If you were to translate that, grace, you who are highly graced. This was God's grace, not Mary's character, that made her God's choice. She was the object of God's grace. So do we hold Mary in high esteem? You know, sure, but not because of who she was, but because of who God is. Because of his graciousness, she was the object of his grace. Her favor before God was not because of anything that she had done. She would conceive by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is immaculate. The fact that outside of the laws of nature, she would become pregnant with God. You know, no pressure on a teenage peasant girl, right? Hey, you're going to be 
You're going to go back and you're going to tell all your family that you're pregnant, but you're still a virgin, you're pregnant, and you're having God. You know, no pressure here, right? Look at verse 31. So behold, you're going to conceive in your womb and you're going to bear a son. You're going to say his name is Jesus. Verse 32, he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. and The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So see the ushering in of the kingdom. The king that would come through this birth would establish a kingdom that has no end. Will never end. So this is the Messiah that the people had waited on. You know, so what do we see about this Messiah? We see that he would be great. He would be great. He would be called the Son of the Most High, and he would reign over all things forever. Verse 34. So Mary says to the angel, this is her reply, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So now Mary's question sounds an awful lot, a lot like Zachariah's, right? And, he, and he's mute because of his disbelief. So the question was similar, but the heart was completely different. Zachariah acted out of his disbelief, while Mary acted out of her wonder and amazement. What a beautiful picture there of the heart of this servant who was chosen by God. Verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, so let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So the angel tells Mary, Listen, even Elizabeth, as old as she is, is pregnant. Nothing is impossible with God. Made sense that Mary could, could be pregnant. Maybe not, you know, obviously not virgin birth, but her age. And he said, look, even Elizabeth, who is well beyond childbearing years, is going to have a son. And nothing is overwhelming. No situation is too far for God to act out his will. And Mary says, I am your servant, Lord. So let it be to me according to your word. This is teenager Mary engaged to Joseph. And listen, in Bible times, this was as, as serious as marriage itself. You, just, you didn't just break up. It would be like divorce. So this was, this was a huge time for them. And we, we see in other accounts where Joseph is also greeted by an angel and told the same prophecy. Mary knew the shame. She knew the embarrassment this would cause and how people would talk. She knew that people would not always assume and, and believe what she had to say. She knew that this story would be wild when she told it to people and family. But she trusted it to God. So where do we see the importance of faith in God above personal comforts in the story? As we think about the big picture, the big story of the gospel, where else do we see this? What about Abraham? Abraham was told that through his faith he would be seen as righteous. Was he perfect? No. He was righteous because of God, but all have sinned. But he believed God, and because of that, his faith, it was counted him as righteousness. He was told, leave everything and go to a place I'm going to show you. Okay, this is leaving the comforts of everything you know, and you go to this place that I'm going to show you. But what did he do? He acted and he went. What about Noah? Noah built a huge boat in the desert. Okay? That was insane in an area where there was no water. God says, you know what, Noah? This is going to look ridiculous, but I want you to build a boat. A boat, God? It's, you know, it's dry. Build a boat. 
Trust me, build a boat. And he does. And people ridicule him. But his faith in God was meant much more than his personal comforts. So I ask you, what is your level of faith? For some of you, God is calling you to make changes and choices in your life that other people are going to think are crazy. God is going to call some of you to do things significant that's going to make radical life changes. And to the world around us who are living by the American dream, who are focusing their life on the things that the world focuses on, and they're going to look at you and go, what is wrong with this person? God is going to call you to radically reorganize your life, your family dynamics, your careers maybe to follow him. And to the outside world, it's going to look crazy, but God says, you are chosen. I've asked, I've called you for this purpose. He desires to do something amazing despite the circumstances. So I ask you, how is the level of your faith? Do you trust him? Even in situations where it may look bizarre, but God has affirmed for you that this is what he desires for your heart. Are you willing to answer that call? So why do you think that Luke sees it necessary to contrast the lives of John the Baptist and Jesus? Obviously, there's a proclamation of the coming of John the Baptist, proclamation of the coming of Jesus, and we're going to see next week the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus. There's There's a backwards and forwards comparison and contrast. Why would he do this? I think for Theophilus, the object of this, who Luke wrote, the person that Luke wrote this for, I think this was crucial. It would not be easy for a Roman official to believe that a poor Jewish teacher, son of a carpenter, executed as a criminal, was in fact the son of God. Luke starts at the beginning, the very beginning, to show that this man and his forerunner were no ordinary people making crazy claims. They were called by God to fulfill the prophecy. They were ordained for this moment, and their births were ordered, and so, that, so were their destinies. So God was uniquely at work in the lives of these two men from conception. The circumstances and the situations, less than ideal. You know, conception and an older woman and a virgin were impossible without God. So what does this mean for us this morning? You know, in your life, the situation may be less than ideal. In fact, it may seem quite impossible. But I want you to hear, when God is involved, nothing is impossible. You can believe that. You can rest in that fact. But I also want us to be quick to see that Jesus has shown through Luke's writing that he would be greater than John the Baptist. This is not a comparison of two equals. This is one who came to tell of the other. In fact, John's message in in the beginning was, look, I'm not even fit to tie this guy's shoes, okay? The one that is coming, I'm baptizing with water. He is going to baptize with something much greater than that as he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So the forerunner and the fulfillment. And Jesus would take center stage, and Luke is going to describe that to us through the remaining part of his letter. The major figure in the gospel here and everywhere else is Jesus. Hands down. That is the star of the, of the story, the hero of the whole Bible. There can be no rival to him for, his, for the love and admiration and obedience of his followers. We can worship a lot of things, there's only one person who deserves our worship. So how do we respond to him? I think there's three things we take from this story very quickly. First of all, we see that God's promises can be believed regardless of the evidence. You can trust in God's promises regardless of the evidence that's there. We must be careful to trust God at his word. Trust what he says. Not always when our unbelieving hearts are convinced by our circumstances, but we trust God not because of what we see, but because we know about him. I want you to remember the parallels and responses between Mary and Zechariah. 
know, how many of you who may be going through difficulty cannot believe God is working in it all for your good until you get some extra evidence that he is? You say, I know that God works all things for the good. And so when my circumstances change, my heart's going to start to believe that. Or do you take him at his word? Remember, his word says that he works all things to the good for those who love him. I think, secondly, we see that a humble and submissive heart can still ask for explanations. You have two different situations. Both ask questions. The heart behind those determine the response. But as we humbly submit our hearts to God, we see that we still can ask for explanations. Mary and Zechariah both question, but, never re- but Mary never rejected the possibility in her unbelief. She knew that God was capable. She responded in humility and submissiveness and desired God to show her how such an impossibility might take place. Now, I don't downplay your situation. Many of you have impossible tasks ahead of you. I can't promise the outcome of those things, but I can promise you that the God who's behind those things is in complete control. The issue that you face is not if you can question, but what is the attitude of your heart? Do you trust God no matter what his answer may be? And finally, we see that even when we have unbelief, God is still faithful. Isn't that beautiful? Even in our unbelief, God is still faithful. Because Zechariah questioned, God didn't say, oh, forget that. You know, I was going to bless you and you were old, but, you, but you, you don't trust me, so forget it. No, John the Baptist was still, still born. God was still faithful. Zechariah still had the opportunity when he, when, he, when he was no longer mute. He still had the opportunity to worship God because of the birth of his son that he had longed for. And we have the hope for forgiveness even in these moments. So what a beautiful story this morning of a faithful God. See this story of Luke implanted in the gospel, not just pulled out from chapter 1. See it planted in the gospel where a, a prophetic God through the prophecy of man prophets revealed prophecy that there would come a man who would go and would point to the coming of the Messiah and in Luke we just were described how it, they fit the bill perfectly fulfilling all prophecy so this morning I pray that as you look at your circumstances may you see the lives of these two and see the faithfulness of God who is not only faithful then but he's faithful now and he will always be faithful to you I don't know what you're facing I don't know what your battles are. I don't know what your addictions are. I don't know what your circumstances are. I don't know what your frustrations are. I don't know those things. I know mine. I know the things I stress and get frustrated and, and bothered by. So we all carry those things. And so with all those uncertainties, the only thing that we do know is the certainty of God who has been faithful from the beginning and who will always be faithful. And we also know this morning that the coming of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the journey had a destination. And each week we're going to focus on that as we take communion during this time. And our band's going to come and they're going to, they're going to lead us in some, some more time of worship. But during this time, may we remember as we have, we're going to look at the prophecy and we're going to look at the birth of Jesus next week. May we be reminded that the story of the birth of Jesus is not just to be told in December. The coming of Jesus was the coming of our salvation. They had waited for years and years and years and not seen it, and he came, and we have the benefit of seeing the whole story played out. And so this morning, as we come and we respond through communion, 
May you be reminded that as you take that, that bread, which represents the body of Christ, as you dip it in that cup, which represents the blood that he spilt for us, may we be reminded that this was a sacrifice that was prophesied many years before it ever took place. And that God, working in his complete sovereignty and control, sent Jesus, prophesied he would come, conceived by a virgin, who we'll see next week, was born in a simple birth. But may we see that his birth and journey and destination had, uh, his birth and journey had a destination, and that was the cross. So this morning, as we take the sacraments, may we be reminded that the body was broken, the blood was spilt for our sin. So how do you respond to this? Look, there are, there are people in this room, the, myself, Dan, community group leaders, other men in this room that would love to tell you about Jesus. They say, I know about this Jesus guy. I do. do you know him? Do you really know him? Do you know him as the prophesied Savior who died to take away your sins? Have you come to a gospel realization in your own life where you have confessed with your mouth, believed in your heart that he is Lord, and experienced that? If you hadn't, I encourage you to talk with someone today. During this time, this is the response time to come and to, 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 uh, to give, uh, to uh, take of the sacraments. That's a response time during that. But there's other things that can take place during this time. You use this time. Use this time to do business with God as you, as you are led to. So I want us to pray. And then we're going to enter to this time of response. Father, I'm so thankful this morning. God, I'm so thankful for your goodness to us. God, that even in the chaos of this morning, even in the chaos that sometimes we call life, God, to know that you have never panicked, God, that you have never been puzzled or stumped, you have never seen life spinning out of control, you have never seen our circumstances as insurmountable, you have never seen our circumstances as things that you could not do anything about. God, I'm thankful that we see through this prophecy more than just the birth of a baby, but we see the fulfillment of the ushering in of a kingdom that you brought through his life and that you will complete when he returns for us again. We have joyful hearts for that, God. So this morning as we finish in worship, and God, as we, as we finish through the taking of the, the sacraments, God, may we be reminded that the birth of Jesus had a purpose and we caused it. So God, may we see the first fruits that were offered to us through the life of Jesus. And God, as we come and as we give, God, as we use this time to give of our offerings, God, to return unto you, may we, re- may we give in response to the goodness that you showed us through Jesus. God, may we give as a response to know that all things that are good come from you. And may we desire to be good stewards in that. So God, we love you. Thankful for this time. God, I pray for those who don't know you as their personal Savior. God, they know the facts of you as Savior. But God, may it become real and a belief to them this morning. God, we love you. We thank you for this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. During this time, you come and take communion. The baskets are on the table. You come and give your offering. This is a part of our worship. We give of our tithes and offerings. So we ask that you do that during this time as well. And let's worship together.